Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Bighorn Podcast, with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. At this time of year, we like to highlight the stories of some of the people that work very hard all year to ensure that our community receives the best possible experience, and that we maintain the level of excellence that we continue to strive for. As we tell the tremendous stories of our members, we also want to share the stories of the staff that also has twists and turns in their lives and get to know them in a more personal way. We are all part of this wonderful community. Today's program is once again brought to you with the support of Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers, a member of our community for over 75 years. Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers continues to provide tremendous service to create a custom product for your special person, including yourself. And Back Nine Greens, whose work is known worldwide. Remember that golf art starts with Back Nine Greens. This is Marty Lockman, and today's guest is Andrew Manelli, Director of Racket Sports here at Bighorn. Andrew joined us during the challenging times of the last couple of years and has elevated the program in a tremendous way, as both tennis and pickleball have become a flourishing part of our community and a fantastic outlet to meet new people and have some competition and fun as we enjoy the season of freedom from restrictions of the pandemic. But let's go back to the story that brought him here. And it starts in Cleveland, Ohio. Andrew, thanks for being here. And please share your story with us. Well, Marty, thanks for having me on. Um, very, very humble to be here. Uh, this is, um, I mean, you've had an impressive list of people that you've interviewed. So to be part of that is an honor. So thanks for having me here today. Uh, yes, you know, started in Cleveland, Ohio. That's where I was born. So I'm a Midwesterner. I think the stereotype of mid Midwesterners are, it's fairly true for the most part. You know, everybody, you know, that's Cleveland and Pittsburgh. Those are more steel towns. You know, everybody's blue collar area. It's, uh, you know, everybody is, they know the value of a dollar. They work hard. They're humble. Um, you know, and, and that's, that's where I grew up. It's a, it's a great place to be. It's a, a great place to be from. And I'm, I'm really happy to, you know, have spent my time there with my family and, and, uh, you know, my career took me other places, but, uh, you know, again, it's it, in a lot of ways, it's, it's still home. Tell me about those early years, because so much of what we all become is based on that foundation that's put in place by parents and family and friends, as you've already said. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, again, growing up in the Midwest, you know, we didn't come from much. Uh, you know, my parents put a lot of emphasis on education. They sacrificed a lot for that for my sister and I. I've got a sister that's about four years younger, and I always tease her that I'm the better looking child and pr the preferred child. But in reality, she's more brilliant than I am. But, um, you know, great family life. Uh, and again, just kind of, you know, they were, they were influencers of mine just growing up, you know, my parents and, 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 you know, how hard they worked. Uh, you know, my mom, my mom and my dad, you know, as most parents do, they've got different makeups. My dad was the executive director of, uh, uh, addictions, um, program. 
you know, and he gave back to that community people that, you know, in, 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 um, uh, versus incarceration, he would educate. And then my mom was more of that calm yoga teacher, you know, that, that, you know, brought, brought us down. And there, there was a good fine balance between the two, two of, you know, between the two of them, but they worked really hard and, and, you know, they taught us a lot and they sacrificed a lot. I'm really grateful for it. And, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, going on from there, you know, them introducing me to tennis and that, you know, I, I would consider myself a rackets enthusiast, but really tennis is my, my first and foremost sport. And kind of how I got into that was watching my dad play tennis. It was maybe five or six. And then all of a sudden, I took his Tad Davis Cup racket. It was about as tall as I was. Yes, it's wooden. I still have it in the house in the frame. Um, and I started hitting against the garage. And again, because we didn't come from much, I, I'd hit the windows out. I'd bust the windows. I'd go down to the neighbor's houses. I'd bust those windows out. And after a lot of apologies and kind of wising it up, you know, we boarded up the garage, no more windows, and then I got some tennis lessons. But there were no, at that time, you were talking about humble beginnings. It wasn't about a tennis club down the street. It wasn't about that. And really, as an individual sport, you go out and do it yourself. The The opponent becomes the garage door. Right. And uh, that's how you started to play tennis. Yeah. I mean, we walked down to the public park. Um you know, if I didn't move my feet, you know, I'd have to, you know, do some sprints or run around the, the playground, which was fun, you know. So, I mean, I just saw it as fun. But, yeah, we didn't, you know, we didn't have access to the club. And, in fact, you know, and we'll we'll talk about it later, you know, I was thinking about what we would, we'd be talking about. But, I mean, my first job was really just trading out time at a club and doing clay court maintenance, you know, for time on the court and time with the pro. You know, so, I mean, that's, that's, that's how, it, how, how it all kind of began. It's it's funny because we talk about these stories are all different, but they're the same. Because when you come from those humble beginnings, your first jobs are out of necessity. It's not because this is a lifelong dream of what you're going to do the rest of your life. Right. But if you want that court time, who is your dad, certainly, because he played. Who was your first instructor during that period of time? Well, I mean, my first instructor, uh, his name was Don Stevens, um, and and uh, phenomenal guy. Um, probably not the best player, and if he's listening to this, I'm sorry about that. But he was an unbelievable motivator, you know. And he he knew the sport, and he knew how to get out of his students what he needed for them to succeed. Uh, but I did move on to a coach named John Heil. He's since passed, um, you know, and and when he passed around when I was 14. But he always preached to me, you know, practice with a purpose and perfect practice makes perfect. Because I think when I was younger, you know, and, and playing tennis, I was a little bit of a space cadet. But then when the gun went off and I was competing, I was okay. But gosh, you know, he, he got me to understand that if I could actually practice with a purpose and not waste that time, how better would I be when I competed? And then, you know, that's that's a life lesson, you know, there for, for John anything, Kyle. not just tennis, but for any part of life is during that time. Now you're going to school. Are you active in any other sports have or have you already decided that tennis is what you're going to do? Yeah, I think when I was younger, uh, you know, 
even chatting with my parents in the last week and they're bringing up old files and things that I drew and stories that I wrote about myself in the third person, you know, as a big dreamer, you know, I, I kind of specialized early, you know, I started playing tennis when I was six, you know, talked about, um, you know, banging out all the garage door windows. Uh, and then I moved on to the court and I think my first goal was really to be number one in Northeast Ohio before the age of 10. And I think, you know, as I was talking about some of the advice that I had gotten from my coaches, I was able to achieve that when I was eight. And that was, that was remarkable. And, and I was always that type of kid growing up where, you know, I, I wanted to see my name in print. I wanted to have my picture on something. And that was the motivator for me, you know, but, but it was, that was the end game, but it was all the hard work that I had to put into it to get there. But again, that all comes from your foundation at home too, because a strong work ethic, whatever you decide to do, but it's important too to have those goals because you have to have something that you're always working towards. So now you've already accomplished your first goal. <laughs> Instead of a 10, you're at eight. Yeah. Uh, boy, sometimes people then don't reestablish other goals. They feel like they've done what they had to do. What was your mindset? Well, you know, I, I, I was lucky in the sense that I was naturally talented. And I had told you earlier that I was a little bit of a space cadet and, and some of the practices. You know, I think one of the, you know, the big lessons in life that I've gotten is, you know, learning from mistakes. And because I was fairly naturally talented, you know, at a young age, um, you know, I went through a little bit of a period where, you know, I was a small, skinny guy. And, you know, around puberty, kids were getting bigger, stronger, and I couldn't just rely on my talent anymore. And kids were starting to pass me up. So there was a little bit of a reality check during that time. You know, of course, I had coaching and advice, you know, that type of thing. Uh, but I think it was more about living it, you know, and and, and having that experience. And, and you know, I, I actually don't I don't think that we lose. It's more about we learn from a loss. And And at that age, I didn't really I look back at it and I was kind of down because I was losing. But, I, you know, as I started to learn on, you know, all right, I need to reengage myself and commit myself to the to putting the work in. Because uh, I can't just rely on the natural talent. Uh, that's when I started to make big strides, and then my my junior career started taking off. But it shows we have to adapt always, and so it's not enough to rely, as you said, on that natural ability. You have to continue to get better all the time. But at a young age, you knew that. Where a lot of other kids would say, "Okay, I'm going to sulk, or I'm a victim, or they're bigger, or whatever." You have to find a way. Right. I mean, it wasn't fun to lose, but you're right. Just, you know, of that that beginning goal of, you know, I want to see myself number one in my region. And then beyond that, you know, hopefully nationally, you know, can I get can I get to an area where, you know, I'll be seen by the college coaches? And again, this is me thinking you know, between 10 and 12 years old, you know, looking down the road of, you know, what could my career look like? Could I be on the pro tour? You know, that type of thing. Um but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's humbling, but you know, I, I think that tennis, I mean, it's, it's a sport where it's a leveler and you got to continue to put the work on. It's a long journey. Did you ever at that time, because this is it's amazing to me at that age to have those sorts of goals, to, to have this self-belief, if you will, is there any time that you remember back then of saying, well, maybe this is just too tough or I'm not going to do it or 
you always kept your eye on the prize. No, I mean, you know, truthfully, there were some times when I, when I, again, I was just trying to figure out how to take a loss. And I think that's, that's a lesson by itself too. You know, how do you lose? What do you learn from it? Those were tough moments. And I think I, I definitely, maybe not interest waned, but you know, just the enthusiasm to get back out there because you're, you're getting beaten down and you're a kid, you know, you, you, you don't know how to process that. I mean, I look back now and I can say, Hey, I should have done this. I should have done that. But that's easy for me to say in hindsight. But when you're a kid and you're going through, that's hard. When you're, when you're going through this, um, how often did you play then? You're eight years old. How much time did you put into tennis at that time? You know, in Cleveland, tennis is because of the snow, you know, and the whole joke there in Cleveland is, you know, you don't ever complain about the weather because it'll get worse in 15 minutes. (laughs) Um, But in the winter, you know, I'd try to play two, three times a week at an indoor club and we'd be driving, you know, on the old Isuzu and in a, in a blizzard trying to get there. In the summer, I would do camps, um, you know, with, with one of my, my later coaches in my career, Dr. Arun Jetley. And, uh, you know, that's when, you know, putting the work in, learning how to be a good ball striker, and then really just as you're playing, in, instead of taking the loss and beating yourself down, getting right back up and figuring out what you can do on the next point, you know, to quiet, quiet your mind and figure out what you can do on the next point to be victorious. So now 10 years old, did you accomplish, you've already accomplished your goal at eight. Where are you now about reestablishing goals and going to the next step? You know, I, I think for me too, you know, in, in, at this point in my career, you know, I'm, I'm very humbled and happy to be where I am here at Bighorn. You know, I've, I've, you know, I'd say in my career, it's been a lot of luck, but it's been hard work too. timing. You know, I've been very fortunate to have been, you know, part of management teams at platinum clubs um, and, you know, have great mentors along the way. So it's not like I'm looking to, to add more notches to my belt. I think the thing that really drives me now is more of, I know it sound, might sound like lip service, but, you know, what can I do to be the best person or the best, the best part of somebody else's day? And in reality, I mean, if you think about it as a pro, as a director, you know, somebody has given up, they've decided to give up an hour of their time to be with me on the tennis court or the pickleball court. So what can I do to be the best part of their day? What about, before we even get into that, where, where does your college career take you? Where, because you said you were looking towards part of your goal was to get a scholarship or to be able to go and play tennis further in your life. What did the college experience look like for you? Yeah, I mean, I'll even kind of back up before there. You know, I, my, again, going back to my parents and what they sacrificed, um, you know, I went to a public school in Cleveland, K through nine. And, you know, it probably wasn't the best school system. You know, I was able to do well with my eyes closed. I would get bored, and then sometimes I wouldn't do well. Um, And then I went to an all-boys private school on the east side of Cleveland University School. Very lucky to have had that experience there and have some great coaching and mentorship where, I mean, that, that school literally kicked my rear end, and it made college easy, and it, it paved the way for me to go to school. I think at that point, you know, our, our 
prep school that we were part of. We were number one in Ohio. Um, the, the, the guy behind me, he surpassed me later on, uh, but he played number one in Ohio State. So, I mean, he was, we had a phenomenal team. Uh, it was a lot of fun. But that helped me get to school. And in, during my time at university school, I actually did a senior project and I got to intern for IMG in Cleveland at their headquarters. And I got to work with, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, but I got to work with Tiger Woods and a sports agent as an intern. And I, I had a lot of fun, fun experiences where I was locked into a room looking at fan mail and stamping books, you know, all those important tasks. But just knowing a little bit on scratching the surface on how hard it is to be pro really the focus became more on the academics. And so I, when I was looking at schools, I'm like, okay, I could go to Miami of Ohio. You know, I was looking at Furman, Davidson, down south, try to get out of those Cleveland winters. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I realized, look, you know, to go pro, it's a needle in a haystack. So I really need to have the education. I mean, what if my body breaks down? And Kalamazoo College is where I ended up. That was my choice. Uh, it was, and still is, you know, a powerhouse, you know, within their conference. I believe that they had won seven national titles before I had gotten there on the D3 level. I think the thing that excited me there is that the academics was number one, but I needed that structure with tennis to structure my day to be successful. That's just how I'm hardwired. Um, but it, it gave me an opportunity to compete at a very high level, but I wasn't necessarily owned by the scholarship. You know, I, I had the opportunity to go study abroad. I had other things that you, you could go do and that, you, you know, you could leave tennis behind. I mean, I, I personally stuck to the tennis, you know, and I, I try to remain focused on that. But it was a great opportunity for me to continue to compete and, again, compete at the highest level and, you know, feel like I, I could make a difference on a team. Uh, you know, our my freshman year... You know, I was teetering uh, on six and seven, you know, on that spot on the roster. Um, and then the very next year I came in, I practiced a lot over the summer. We're kind of going back to, you know, life is cyclical and training is cyclical and recommitting yourself to it. And I came in confident, playing well, and, and you know, the results kind of took care of themselves that way. And we had a great season. Uh, you know, we... My sophomore year, we took second in the country. We lost to Williams College in the NCAA Finals out in Claremont, McKenna, which is not too far from us. Uh, but again, you know, what a great experience for me to, to continue on competing. And again, at the highest level, but as I said, equally on the table, which is important, was the academics. Have you always been, since you started at such a young age in this, always been a person who sets goals. Absolutely. You, you know, I, and it, it, I think that's what John Heil taught me was, you know, practice with a purpose. So if you don't have a purpose, if you don't have a goal, what are you doing? Are you wasting your time? Um, you know, and I, if I didn't have that goal, it's easy to lose sight of your journey. You know, and I, I think having short-term and long, long-term goals, you know, whether it's in sport or it's in life or in business, you got to have them there. Um, how often do you reevaluate those goals? Yeah, you know, I, I think the answer would be daily. 
You know, I sometimes I just with, with a with a six year old, a dog, and like three cats at home, and a very successful wife. You know, life changes on a dime. So it's it it yeah, it's survival mode. But you know, again, it's short term goals. You know, what can what can I do for my family? Yeah, what can I do to help my son? And we have a little girl on the way in July, which is exciting. But uh, you know, what can I do to put them in a good place, like my parents did for for me and my sister? Uh, you know, I think that's probably the goal. But you know, I do reevaluate all the time. You know, I think that's the that that's the overarching you know goal that that I have in mind. But to get through the day, <laughs> you know, it whatever it takes, you know, it could change. Hourly. Hourly, right. Especially with a young family. Uh, how did you and your wife meet? We actually met on Match.com. And maybe, maybe we should be part of that commercial there. Um, <laughs> but I met, her, I met her when I was living in Atlanta. I spent about 10 years of my career in Atlanta. And I was at the Atlanta Athletic Club there, which is a platinum club. We hosted a professional ATP event there. And every decade, we would host the PGA Championships. So it's a phenomenal club, and I was very lucky to be there. Uh, but because I really had committed myself to my career and putting my head down and just you know trying to accelerate and you know get to where I needed to be in my mind, you know goal setting, I realized that going out to bars and, and doing all of that wasn't as much fun. So why not try the online thing and look for somebody just as crazy as I I am? Um, and she's not crazy. Maybe she's crazy, you know, for liking me, uh, but. I think we both found some commonality and it was a, it was a good avenue for us to, to meet each other and the rest is history. And again, a good history that's still ongoing, obviously. Right. Uh, was Atlanta the first job or how did you get there? So after I graduated from Kalamazoo College, uh, it was 2001. The job market, probably as you recall, was not the best. Uh, 9-11 had just happened um, and and um, living at my my parents' house in Cleveland going, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can do another winter. I love it here and I love you guys. I don't know if I can do another winter. So by chance, I, I went back to Kalamazoo College to see the guys play, cheer them on one weekend. And I knew the women's coach really well because he was, he was a phenomenal coach. He coached some juniors in the area and I helped him do that on the side. And he looked at me and he goes, Manelli, what are you doing with your life? You look like a stiff. I go, well, I, I don't know what that means. But I'm just I'm just trying to get out of my parents' basement, you know, and and I'm interviewing for jobs. I'm maybe a, a a bank examiner with a Federal Reserve Bank, talking to them, and maybe I'll do retail banking. I and mean, that's all that's hiring. You know, IMG was in a hiring freeze. The ATP Tour, which I had interned as well, they were in a hiring freeze. Plus, I'm not bilingual, unfortunately, but it was a really tough job market. And he goes, "Well, you know what? Would you want to teach tennis?" Well, I said, sure, you know, anything to get out of my parents' basement. So probably within a week, um, I had received the, the call that kind of started it all for me. Billy Stearns, uh, that was spent most of his career out of Florida, had partnered with Stan Smith. And he's not just a tennis shoe, he's a great guy. So I got a call. The two of them were, were starting a junior tennis academy at Sea Pines on, in, in Hilton Head, Harbor Town. And they were leasing courts and starting a junior tennis academy. So I said, sure, I'll want an invite. I'll, I'll come down and check it out. Moved away and, and never really looked back, you know, in terms of what else should I do with my career. And what a great start 
with a legend and also some exposure, better weather. Um, that Where did it go from there? Well, I mean, it's just you're earning your stripes in your first job. You know, you're, you're grinding. Um, and, you know, we, we all do on a daily basis anyway, but I mean, I was really trying to prove myself. Um, you know, I think that was a phenomenal opportunity for me because number one, you know, I was coming off, you know, a college season and put the racket down for a little while. So I was, you know, getting reinterested in tennis again and, you know, could make, you know, committing myself to, to possibly making that a career. Um, so what an opportunity to hit with some great juniors because the people that I was coaching were, were world ranked in juniors and they were going for college scholarships and they were playing some of the best national tournaments that I couldn't afford to go when I was a kid. So I'm hitting sparring with them, but at the same time I'm learning how to coach from legends and not that my coaches growing up weren't good coaches, but I'm hearing different things that are starting to connect. And I think that really was a good foundation for me and, and, and how that shaped the way I coach and the way I go about things. And that was, that was, that was the start, but I mean, it was really, I was waking up at six in the morning. I was a sparring partner in lessons. I was actually a sparring partner for, um, Jesse Pagula, who I believe she's probably top 30 in the world right now. And her dad owns the Buffalo bills. Uh, but that was, that was fun, but that was also stressful, but learning how to manage the stress, you know, and, and, you know, she was, she was about how old I was, uh, when I started and I'm trying to get the ball flat right in her strike zone so she can get a rhythm and learn things as the coach is coaching her. But I'm also listening in on what he's saying. And what a great, phenomenal opportunity in, in so many ways to be there. But I would think also because the tennis part of it is something you knew. You're always learning and it's always evolving. But now you've got to get into the psychology of it. And you're learning and watching. You know, we always say you don't learn anything if you don't listen. And you're really getting a master's degree in the psychology of the aspect of coaching. Yeah. I mean, I'd always argue that, you know, tennis pros, I mean, you got to be a lot more than just a coach, right? You know, you got to be a, mo you got to be a motivator. Um, you got to be a police officer. You got to put your, 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 your foot on the ground sometimes and say no. Um, but you also have to be a psychologist. And I think too, you know, I think why tennis is such a hard sport you know, it's, it's a long season. I mean, even if you look at the pros, I mean, they, they don't, they have less than a month off a year to recover. I mean, that's really nothing, but you know, it's, it, I saw a lot of parents would want it more than their kid, you know, and I think trying to really get in there and, and, and remembering when I was younger, when I was starting to lose and try to process what that was, try to help them understand, like, look, this is a game this is supposed to be fun. But at the same time, these are life lessons that you're learning. You know, can you recommit yourself? Can you find the love and the fun in this? And a lot of it is just enjoying the process and the journey along the way, but not, not necessarily worrying about the outside noise, what mom and dad think. Well, that's the other question, Andrew. To me, it's, it's fascinating, especially when you're dealing with juniors. The player isn't the issue. The parents might sometimes be the issue. How do you walk that thin line? Because you don't want to alienate somebody and then not have them as a, as a student any longer, but continue to kind of be a buffer sometimes, I would think, between the parents and the, 
in the individual? Yeah. I mean, when I, I, I traveled to tournaments with some of the kids as well. Um, and some parents would come, some wouldn't, and you know, that's okay. Uh, some of the parents that wanted to talk to their kid right after the match, I wouldn't let it happen. So, you know, I'm the first person that they would talk to, you know, we would let them calm down, whether it was a win or a loss. And we would talk about the match. Um, and I would try to keep them and I would have that conversation early on that looked like, trust me, let me do my job. You know, I'm, I'm here for both of you. And you know, that that's, it's still hard, right? You know, I would get some calls at 10 o'clock at night wondering why, why their kid lost. But then the other part of it as, as a coach, you, ha- you have to be, you got to be honest. Well, it seemed like they didn't care, you know, and we got to figure that out. So how can we be as a, how can we be a team to figure that out? I'm here for both of you. How long then were you at the academy there? So I, I was there about a year. And, you know, as I'm telling that whole story about the grind of, you know, being there with the kids. And I mean, it was fun, you know, and I still talk to some of my students. I mean, some are married now and they have kids, which shows you how old, you know, I am. But um, I was there about a year and then I decided, I'm like, look, you know, I love, I love tennis. You know, that's, that's, that's what I grew up doing. I took my dad's racket for a reason and, it, you know, it was, it was fun. So I, you know, I, I decided to look more into the private sector to see, you know, if I could bring tennis more to the masses. And I, you know, and I, my next move was at the Landings Club in Savannah, Georgia, which is actually the largest country club in the United States in terms of square footage. They had three tennis centers there in a very robust, active program. But they wanted me to run their junior program because that's what I was just coming from. But it gave me an opportunity to work with the adults. So that way, you know, I was, I was able to achieve you know, then the next stop on the journey of, of working with, with other people. And, and to me as a young coach, also knowing my audience, right. You know, I'm not going to teach uh, a veteran tennis player, something that I would, who's, you know, younger, maybe there's mobility issues, you know, that type of thing. And I'm learning that, you know, so again, it's a lot of, a little bit of learning on the job as a young age and earning my stripes always. How old were you? 23. And this is Really, as you've explained it, really a transition time for you, because you're now going, as you said, from the juniors to getting some adult interaction, uh, and still at 23, um, very young. Right. Yeah, very, very young. I, you know, I was very lucky to have some good mentors along the way. You know, my, my, my boss at the Landings Club, I actually ended up working for him again at a different club. Uh, but... Yeah, I mean, what what a phenomenal opportunity to to be able to shift gears and continue to learn. Because I always believe that you know if you're not if you're not a consummate learner and you're not continuing to learn, then you're dying. So now you've moved to this new opportunity. Um, how long does that go on for? I was there almost about four years, um, and I think at that point, you know, I knew that you know early on, you know bad job market in 2000, 2001. And, and, you know, I'm going to commit myself to this and we'll see how far I can take it. I think at that point I started to realize that it's going to be a career and that I could actually make a career out of this. And, and how much fun is that, that I get to run around on a tennis court in shorts and have fun with people and teach a skill, you know, keep somebody in shape or maybe they want to co- compete, you know, whatever. 
Uh, but what a great opportunity that is. And so about four years into it, there was a head pro opportunity. You know, I'm st- taking that step up from the assistant or, you know, the junior coordinator at the landings. Um, and there was a head pro opportunity at Country Club Roswell in Atlanta. And that's when I had moved over there where I was still over the juniors, but Atlanta is a, it's a beast in a different way in terms of league play. So they, um, they have something called ALTA, which is the Atlanta Lawn Tennis Association, Atlanta Lawn Tennis Association. And um, every club has multiple teams, probably over 10 at the minimum. Um, and what a, that was a good opportunity for me to start digging into more of club life, uh, personalities, um, you know, politics, team makeups, you know, all of that. But then again, you know, evolving my teaching skills and, and learning from, from people. And, and there in Atlanta, it's a, it's a great community because a lot of the tennis directors in town, they're friends. It's not cutthroat. And if somebody's having an issue down the street, you call the other director and say, hey, you know, Hater was being a jerk on the court. Have you encountered that before? What would you do about that? So it was an open community and it was a, everybody was sharing and learning. So that was, um, that was my next stop in my career there at Country Club Roswell. Um, and, you know, it, the people that I've met, you know, in terms of my students, but again, as well as my colleagues, I wouldn't trade that for anything. It was just one of those phenomenal opportunities that's helped shape who I am and where I am today. When you're going through these transitions, always wanting to better yourself. Were you playing any competitive tennis at this point in your career? And is it possible to do both? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're two different things. It is possible to do both. Um, yes, I was playing. I was playing some league tennis myself uh, because there is, there is a robust group of, of women as well as men um, that are they're former college players. You know, I played against uh, so an All-American from Georgia Tech, you know, that type of thing. And, and, you know, so I was playing a lot. I played in a prize money league in Atlanta and it was a lot of fun. And, and at least for me, like within that men's doubles group, it was more of a brotherhood. And a lot of the guys that I had met, you know, in that were sharing ideas on how to manage things and, and how to coach, but they became lifelong friends and, and several of them were in my wedding. Amazing. That's, well, I, again, I think that that's all part of the transition, too, because at 23, 24, you don't say, well, I'm finished playing because you still have that in your DNA. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, absolutely. I, you know, once you're a competitor, you know, you, you kind of always are. And it, it, I, I don't think that maybe, even though I don't really compete now, you know, I, I chase a kid around and make sure the dog doesn't do something wrong. But, you know, we always compete in something. Uh, well, just getting better in life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so now you're the head pro at a club, taking on a lot more responsibility, not only the the teaching, but also, I imagine, administrative things and other things that you hadn't been involved in right. previously. How long are you there? So it was, it was, you know, I think I had a, if you kind of look at my resume, it looks like the you know, logical pro- progression, but I was, I was mostly at these clubs as I was ascending three to four years. So I was at Country Girl Roswell for about three and a half. Um, 
And I actually had a very unique opportunity where, you know, I was trying to look outside of Atlanta. Um, and it, again, it's a great community. There's, there's nothing, nothing other than, than that. It, it's just a great tennis community. But I, I wanted to look outside and see what else was out there. And so I actually had an interview with the Olympic Club in San Francisco as their assistant head pro. You know, you know, and, and although it might have looked like a lateral move, I would I would make the argument that different parts of the country are very different. And and although clubs, you know, the, the DNA can be similar, it's also very different as well. So I just wanted to continue to expand my awareness. So I was interviewing there um, and very fortunate to, to make some connections with some really great people at that club. And I was offered the job. But I didn't. I didn't take it, and you know it was. It wasn't because it wasn't a great opportunity, but I was afforded more managerial opportunity to work with my former boss at the Landings Club, where he took over at the Atlanta Athletic Club. But he goes, Andrew, you know what? I know you want to spread your wings and see a different part of the country. Look at the cost of living out there, by the way. But I'd really love to have you here, and so I stayed. And don't we always want to be someplace where they want you to be? Yeah, yeah. And and it was, so moving to the Atlanta Athletic Club was just, again, as you asked me before, you know, my tenure at some of these clubs, it was a logical progression in my career. You know, it, it afforded me the opportunity to keep learning and, you know, learn how to do a budget and, you know, simple things like that, that, you know, might be simple to, to me now, but gosh, that was a foreign language at that point. Um, you know, for, for a department of a club. And so, you know, it afforded me great training and again, learning on the job with one of my mentors that I was really fortunate enough to, to get to work with again. So now the growth continues. Um, you still have it in your mind that you want to spread your ring, wings more. But as I understand it, you want to be better prepared to do that when right. the opportunity arises, what opportunity arises. And again, I don't, when I'm asking you these questions, it isn't about how long have you stayed. It's more about your growth. Sure. Because it's not the amount of time that you spend at something, but because you can have a, a great impact on each one of those stops. And it's not that you get that job. I'm not speaking for you, but it's, I, assumption that it's not you're not looking at a new job when you get one it just is a matter of opportunities it's a matter of your growth because you're always looking to grow right you know i think at that point you know i really want to be a director jeff jeff chanley came into the atlanta Athletic club and and you know at that time i think it was around 2013 about um some clubs were making their, their tennis director, director of athletics, where they would oversee tennis as well as, you know, athletics. So Jeff felt like he needed a strong number two, which was a huge compliment, but it afforded me the opportunity to learn a lot of things that he had done so well and then learn under his tutelage. Uh, but at that point, again, I already knew this was going to be a career and, and looking at some of the job sites and looking at what some of the jobs required I would kind of work backwards and see, you know, have I done that? Can I, can I click, you know, can I check off that box? And if not, you know, 
it's to your point. Yeah. It's not about the time. It's about the impact and, and, you know, have I learned something and, you know, I'm able to check off a lot of boxes for a club and, and does that make sense? Where do you finally come to the West coast? I blame my wife for that. So, you know, when I had met my wife in Atlanta, um, she was transitioning to be an internal medicine physician and, uh, we were living together, we were engaged and, you know, I told her, sweetheart, you know, wherever you land, you know, for, for your residency, please let it be a great tennis area. So, you know, I told her, you know, we can stay in Atlanta, no problem. Florida is a great state, but I'm still getting that West coast itch. So if you wouldn't mind, could you, could you do that? And she's awesome. So, I mean, she did. Uh, and she, so this is where I blame her. Um, and that's the fun part, but she got into the internal medicine program at, um, at Loma Linda. So, which is not too far from here. And I was just ecstatic for her, but as well as for my career, a little bit nervous because we were newlyweds that couldn't rub, rub a penny together. And I couldn't quit my job at a great job, you know, at the Atlanta Athletic Club to just move out there. So as newlyweds, she moved out there. There was a little bit of time apart and I'm, I'm networking and trying to do everything I can, you know, to, to get out to the West Coast. And, and a lot of what I've done too in my career is not just, you know, what, what have I done on the court or managerially? You know, I also volunteered on boards you know, the Georgia Professional Tennis Association. I was the Georgia United States Professional Tennis Association state president. I was on the Southern board. And I, I feel like in a lot of ways, again, it, you know, it's a community where you give back to each other. And in that point in time, there was a need for me. And, you know, I needed to be with my bride, my new bride, and I wanted to be out on the West Coast with her. And who knew anybody out there that could make some introductions, not necessarily a job, but just some introductions where I can network and, and, and try to get to where I need to be. Uh, you know, and through, through, through somebody with the United States Professional Tennis Association and going, Hey, Andrew, I just heard Riviera Country Club opened up. You should look into that and maybe send your resume to their general manager over there. Okay. And again, I have no idea in terms of mileage what that is from Loma Linda to, to Riviera, but why not? Looks like a fantastic place. And at that point in time, I didn't really know much about it. And then when I started digging, I'm like, whoa, I'm not going to get this. But, you know, I was fortunate enough to get an interview and went through the process with them. And that's a very interesting club. They're owned by a Japanese business family, Mr. Watanabe. Is also another mentor of mine, taught me a lot. But um, they interviewed me, you know, different business model there. Um, but some of the same people that really are here at Bighorn as well. And they're just great people. And it's a great community. Uh, so I, I interviewed somehow. They must have liked me. Um, and I, I must have dazzled them somehow. I don't know how I did it, but I got the job. And I remember when I was moving out here too, uh, we were living in Loma or the Riverside area. And I remember I was talking to one of my buddies in Malibu and he goes, Minnelli, what, what do you, what do you do? Why are you living in Riverside? Oh, it's only 50 miles to Riviera. Whew, two hours, one way, you know, and, and that's without rain or a motorcycle fatality, God forbid. But that was, um, 
that was a journey by itself, 24 hours, at least in the car, you know, per week, you know, just, just to try to get there. But again, all in the name of, you know, being with my bride, family's number one, but also, you know, progressing in the career. But again, you, we get back to the same thing. You do what you have to do. Yeah. Uh, this is right from the very start of your career or most of our careers. And it continues. It doesn't change. There's the old line, you have to do what you have to do so you can do what you want to do. Uh, your family is important to you. Your wife has made some sacrifices for you. She's sure. come out to the West Coast and, and you now have this opportunity. That's... How do you not survive, but how does that flourish? How does that go? Though, I mean, those were some rough years in terms of, I mean, I think it was really more of the commute and the fatigue, you know, and I didn't know how that was going to kind of weigh on me. But, you know, supporting her through residency and seeing her happy and learning, because, I mean, that's that's her jam. Uh, but then, you know, in terms of, what I what I'm afforded to do at Riviera in terms of their different business model. I mean, we had to turn multi million dollar profits just on my department. And how lucky am I? I mean, it, it's luck and it's not. You put the hard work in and you create your own luck. I should say that first. But how lucky am I to be in that position where I'm faced with that challenge and Mr. Watanabe's pushing me to potentially get there? So you have. Your wife is studying at a f- tremendous facility. You're at a tremendous club. Um, this goes on for how how long does this commute go on? I was famous for that commute, and I think I still am. Uh, but that went on for about a little bit over three years, and then we were expecting a little boy at that point in time. And, and I figured, gosh, you know, something has to give at some point. You know, maybe we move closer there, you know, because she's getting closer to the end of her residency. Um, You know, I'm really enjoying Riviera, the people and the challenge. Uh, But then all of a sudden I got and this is where, again, I I firmly believe you create your own luck with hard work and what you do and and just being a good person and treating people the way you want to be treated. And I, you know, I, I got a call from Seattle Tennis Club saying, hey, our, our director of tennis is retiring after over three decades of service to the club. And you don't have the job, but would you be interested in having the conversation with us? So, of course, I have to ask the boss at home to see what she thinks, and she's, she loves the idea. Uh, so I, I do the same thing where you know I, I do my homework on them. I don't have to leave where I am. I'm super happy. Uh, you know, I mean, but I'm, I'm understanding a different, different club, right? You know, it's, there's commonalities, but you know, it's a different DNA. I mean, they're steeped in tradition and it's a, it's a really is a, a cool thing. You, they still wear all white there at the club. Uh, their club championships, which they called tennis week was one of the most phenomenal things I've ever seen Art, it doesn't matter if you played tennis once a year and you dust the racket off, you know, and you take it out of the closet or you play multi, I mean, multi days out of the week, but everybody plays in it. So, I mean, on an annual basis, we'd probably have over 550 people playing in the club championship, which would last two weeks long. So just kind of seeing what they do 
and their traditions and the pride surrounding that, that was very attractive to me. Um, and, and I was very lucky enough that it was a fit both ways. And so I, I was able to take on a new challenge. And with that as well, you know, my wife was still ascending in her career as well. And she was interested in, in kidneys, which is where, you know, in Seattle and University of Washington, that's where dialysis was born. And so she, she was actually, she applied and, and got accepted to probably one of the best, best uh, programs in the country for that. And what a dream come true for us to be able to both go to a new city with a newborn, by the way, which can be hard. Uh, but do that with two jobs and, and, you know, at least a little bit of foundation where, where we know we can get our feet on the ground. A bit of serendipity for all that to happen at the same time. You know, we all say there are no accidents. Right. But this really now, you guys are in the same place. You're both flourishing in your careers. You both have a new opportunity. Um, that's got to be a, a, an ex, and a new child. This has to be a very exciting time for you. Very exciting time. Uh, you know, again, getting to meet a different, different set of members, uh, understanding how they tick, because again, everybody's different. Every club makeup is different. The expectations are different. Uh, you know, but again, at the same time, to your point with this, you know, being serendipitous, uh, you know, great phenomenal opportunity for Carrie to be able to, you know, continue on in her training and just be a rock star in what she wants to do. So, um, again, a completely different culture for you coming from Riviera to Seattle. Ten Seattle as a city and right. Seattle Tennis Club. Um, tell me about how that works out for you and how then, I guess, the next step, which we're all fortunate for, and that is for you to be here. Yeah. Um, you know, Seattle Tennis Club is just a, it's a phenomenal place, uh, you know, there, there were a lot of long hours in the summer because I ran, I ran their club championships. I ran the Washington State Open, had $32,000 prize money, which I made equal for men and women while I was there. Very proud of that. And also the National 60s indoors. So, I mean, the summers were just absolutely jam-packed. But the interesting thing about that club um, is that they've got an abundance of courts, but during the Seattle rainy season you shrink to, you know, six, which were indoor. I had five staff there, um, and we had 800 active tennis members, which is huge. It, I'm sure it's at least grown at this time, you know, but it, it, it was huge. And just managing all that and the challenges of that was hard, you know, and having those conversations of, you know, why can't I get my tennis court was, was challenging, but again, at the same time, it was a great opportunity to learn how to deal with pressure, you know, and sometimes a little bit of conflict, you know, which I think a lot of people avoid. But, you know, if we can have those conversations early on, that's healthy. But in a lot of ways, you know, those, there were some challenging situations. But, but on the other side of that, I mean, you, it's a club that really supported their sport because tennis is its middle name and it's a great place. It is a great place, and it, and again, uh, I had a little experience at the Seattle Tennis Club in that my oldest daughter had their, her wedding reception at the Seattle Tennis Club. So it's an iconic place, 
uh, and really a center, historically, a center of activity for all of Seattle at the Seattle Tennis Club. Yeah, it, it's a phenomenal place, and and that's that's great. I mean, it's such a small world that you were up there and that your daughter had a reception there. I mean, eating out on the lawn and seeing Mount Rainier in the background is pretty neat. Um, and, you know, during during the Washington State Open, which the club really got behind as well, uh, that was also during Seafair. So it was really cool in the sense that, you know, when we had a lot of our open division players with the men and the women, they're playing – they toss the ball up and all of a sudden the Blue Angels just fly right down there and you're like, oh, good God, are they going to hit me? And then you hear car alarms because they're so, they're so close. But it's just a really, really neat place and great energy. But we, again, wanted you down here. So how did that happen? So this is where I get to blame my wife because I, I, I really enjoyed the club and, and the people there and I still keep in contact with a lot of them. Um, but she, when she finished up her her fellowship in nephrology, she got heavily recruited to come down here to join a medical practice. And I had always loved, you know, Southern California, so it wasn't a hard sell for me to come back to it. Um, so she she got a position, and she's I think three years new into it, and now partner, you know, at the medical firm. So I'm very proud of her. Plug plug for you, Carrie, uh, for doing everything you do and for people. Um, so that, that, that brought us down here. And at that point in time, uh, Enzo, who's our, our child, I think he was, a, what, almost four when we moved down here. So that was an opportunity for me because I was also going 200 miles an hour with everything that I had done, you know, to kind of slow down and, you know, me, maybe reevaluate like what I had done earlier in my career with tennis, you know, and, and not necessarily I had to find the love again. But, you know, just push pause, take some time for myself because you don't get that time back with your kid. So we moved down here and I actually pushed pause on the career for a little bit. And then not too long after that, COVID happens. It's tough. And because I had made a lot of friends, you know, speaking at conferences and, and you know, talking with our tennis directors around the country, I started getting a bunch of phone calls where, you know, Andrew, I just got fired. I just got furloughed. What do you think? I'm like, why are you asking the guy who doesn't have a job, right? But it was, it was humbling in a way, but, you know, it's, it's great to stay connected with people and, and try to help how you can because there's no other satisfying thing to help somebody else. So kind of through that, it, it, it was almost like a tennis lesson book where it became a thing. And I actually helped a couple people find some other jobs as, the world was transitioning and learning more about COVID and, you know, what that meant and, and what that meant for my sport and tennis and even pickleball as that's on the rise too. Uh, so I, the, the, the industry is seeing a great, great amount of movement. And actually the, there was an outside firm that vetted me for the Riviera country club job. So I just called them up. I said, Hey, you know, I'm doing this, you know, out of the goodness of my heart, cause I care. But is there business in that? What do you think? I go, Andrew, we don't have a rackets guy. Why don't you do this with us? So I did. And so, you know, I, I, I do that. I do that now, you know, a little bit in my spare time. Uh, I just finished a, a search with the Garden of the Gods in Colorado Springs. So I do executive search work for the private club industry. I do consulting, you know, I help with budgeting, bylaws, you know, all that type of stuff because I've been fortunate enough to be in a lot of situations where I've learned a lot and a lot from mistakes, but a lot too from great mentors. 
Um, and so, you know, that's part of the consulting that I do, you know, and it's very part time. But I've been doing that since really COVID hit. Um, and actually through my business, I found out about Bighorn. And I knew that there was a transition um, that was happening here. And I started knocking on Tony's door. What a great guy. And, and gosh, is this guy going to call me back? And I'm glad he did. I, I met with Tony and met with Carl, Patty, you know, saw the property, saw what uh, R.D. Hubbard had done in his vision. And I instantly fell in love with, with what Bighorn is, what it represents and what it stands for. And I saw that as a fit where it, it would bring me back to community where I can kind of pick up where I left off. And I get to do this, really, I'm full-time seasonal here. You know, I get to do this, you know, September through May. And it's it really is a dream in the sense where I get to, I get to be the best part of somebody else's day as long as I put the effort in, right? But I, I, I get to continue to do that. And then in my spare time, if there's a little bit of work, you know, in the summer when it's 110 plus, that can help another club find somebody else. And, and I, I get to be a connector. It's more mission-based of how can I make the industry better by connecting a great professional with a, with a deserving club and vice versa. And this doesn't happen by accident. You're, the timing looks almost um, uh, an accident, but it's not because you prepare for this every step of the way. You have this great network. You've kept in touch with people throughout your career. Uh, you come here at a time when your son is starting school. That's yep. not by accident yep. that you start doing that. It, it is your wife's opportunity. But again, none of this happens by accident. Had you not done all of these things, stayed in touch with people, done all of this, the networking thing has been absolutely invaluable. Yeah. And never burn a bridge too, right? You know, I mean, even through difficult situations, we all handle them in lives, but you know, it's, I think it's always important, you know, as somebody's progressing through their career, you know, it's, it's great to start off well, but if you do transition, you got to leave well too, you know, and, 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 you know, even when I left Seattle Tennis Club, I gave over 90 days, you know, cause part of, part of what drives me also is to see, see a place a little bit better than I found it and to try to get better every day myself, you know? And so I think that, you know, to your point, thank you. I mean, that's a compliment. Uh, it, yeah, it is no accident, but you know, in a lot of ways, great way. Well, There's a perfect storm where it can kind of converges here and it all kind of happens at the same time. And I'm, I'm really lucky and blessed. Well, I think also one of the other circumstances is this was a real time for Bighorn to take a step forward in the racket sport program because we've all always had that. And again, there's been good people here, but we've always had it as a kind of an addition to. But it does stand on its own now. You've made some great strides in that. And of course, timing has to do with that too, with the increase in pickleball, for example. Yeah. Uh, all of those sorts of things. You're growing this program for us to a point where we haven't been before. And that's a great, not just sales point, but it's a great part of increasing the involvement of our community. We all talk about twists and turns. That's another timing aspect of this. Yeah, I mean, the, the industry is changing. A lot of tennis directors now, I mean, that that title is going to go away. I mean, and, and, you know, 
during the introduction of what my title is, you know, I'm overseeing two sport. And I, and I also have to say that, you know, I'm really blessed to have a great teammate in Claudia. She works hard. She's got a great relationship with the members and the rapport and her enthusiasm for both sports is just unmatched. And so, you know, it's, I have to, to give a lot of credit to her because it's not just me, you know, as a manager, it's, it's more about your team than yourself. So, I mean, kudos to her for everything that she does because she cares, you know, and that's, that's more than half the battle. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're at a point where, I mean, if you kind of think about COVID and what that's done for tennis, tennis actually was dying in this country in terms of activity and participation. And that's sad for me as the tennis purist starting at six years old. And then you see pickleball on the rise. But, you know, I think where, you know, as we start to learn more about COVID, hey, tennis and pickleball are like built-in social distance sports. And so I think for a lot of clubs, you know, whereas it might have been more of like an afterthought or a stepchild, it's really more of an, a serious menony because as people are all cooped up in their homes what am I going to do? I need to get out. Well, you can go play tennis. You can go play pickleball. That's safe. And that's fun. So, you know, not only are they having fun, but they're exercising and then maybe they're getting those competitive juices going to in another avenue. So I think, you know, it took the pandemic, unfortunately, to get tennis back on the map and just pickleball is just fun. It's just growing. And so I think, you know, the industry's changing where more and more directors are having to oversee more and their teams are having to do crossover between the two. And it's just fun. Uh, but yeah, I mean, what our goal here is to, to create the best opportunity we possibly can that somebody can't get anywhere else. And, and yeah, it, yeah, we stand alone, but we're not siloed. We've got a great team around us in terms of support from, from Juan and Jared and, and catering and, and Tony as a manager and Carl and, and Mr. Bury. So, I mean, great support to, to keep pushing what's going on in industry forward, but bringing it here for our membership. Well, also, it's just, it's contagious, I think, that positive attitude, because anybody that's gone by the tennis courts, not so much because we don't, they're not as visible all the time, but any of us that have come by the pickleball courts and seen the activity and seen the excitement and seen the enthusiasm, this adds to the club experience, not just as a sport, but as a, as I mentioned before, a social outlet. And and it, it it's exciting about our future as a club to have this to be part of our future. Yeah, I think we're here to we're here to foster the invisible many, which is community. And I really think that pickleball and tennis does that, and especially pickleball now because it's it's on the rise and how fun that is. Um, you know, and I, I think both sports are very challenging to learn. Um, maybe, maybe less pickleball. It's probably easier to pick up, but hard to get good at. And tennis, you just got to stay committed with it. But I think you know where we are with pickleball, and 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 also, uh, you know where we are in the industry and, and and what's going on with our membership. I mean, there's a big enthusiasm for pickleball because it's it's almost like tennis in the '70s. And I was born in '79, so maybe I can't really speak to that as well, but. You know, you had the pickup games and that's what's going on with pickleball right now. And that's very exciting because again, it's bringing the Bighorn membership community together and it's fun and, you know, there's some healthy banter and, you know, and then again, what can we do to, to keep encouraging that? 
and we're you know we're not perfect, but we're we're going to continue to get better on a daily basis. And you know, I'm I'm excited for the next season as well because we're going to continue to do some fun things with both sports. Well, I'm excited for the future too. Not only the club, but your involvement, and also Claudia, and where I believe this is going to continue to grow. You're part of the club is going to continue to grow, and anything that that brings our club together, as we hope these podcasts do, anything that brings our club together is a positive for the future and the health of this club, for sure. Right. I've got some questions for you, though, at the end that um, I ask most everybody, but it also gives us some insights. One of them is specific to you, uh, and that is where do you see the club going in the area that you're involved in, in the future? Well, I'm going to have to have that tough conversation about land, I think, you know, and I, I'll, I half laugh about that and kid, but I, I, I do see that our area is going to, you know, going to continue to grow because we, we want to keep unveiling a, a, an evolving menu of things that are fun, but you know, there's not one right way to use a club you know, whether you want to go out and take a lesson with a pro or you want to hit in the ball machine because we have a pickleball ball machine and a tennis ball machine, or you want to go out and do some of the open play or we create a clinic or you play a match against one of us, you know, we, that's, that's, what's going to be fun. I, I think that as the demographic will change for clubs and especially here with Bighorn, you know, we're going to probably get a little bit younger and we're going to get some people who are going to, you know, want to continue on with that social distance sport and, you know, have, have fun with it. And, and we want to be ready and prepared, you know, to, to continue to, to make a difference. So yeah, where's the land? I mean, maybe again, we talk about short-term and long-term goals. I mean, long-term, we might need to have that conversation of, do we need additional courts? Well, as long as it continues to grow and as long as I, I believe in any club, uh, the membership will tell you, uh, yep. where you need to go. And uh, right now, we're seeing an awful lot of involvement in the area that, that you've contributed so much to. Who are some of the greatest influences on your life? You've touched on some of them, but uh, we might want to revisit that for yeah, a second. Yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, I mean, my parents, you know, the, the good Midwest people that, you know, came from humble beginnings and, and really, you know, just sacrificed so much for me to, to have a journey in sport that's given me a lot. Uh, you know, I think the other one was John Heil, um, and perfect practice makes perfect and practice with a purpose. And that's something that, I mean, as I'm telling you today, I mean, I, you got to continue to do that even as a coach, you know, what, what's the purpose of what we're doing? Um, and, and, you know, can't lose sight of that and just aimlessly just hit balls on a pickleball court or a tennis court. And, you know, I think the, the last one, you know, that I'd say the, it's a big influence. There was my boss at two clubs, Jeff Chanley, you know, with, at the landings and, and the Atlanta Athletic Club. That man was as cool as a cucumber. And, you know, and, and in clubs, you know, look, you've got, you've got personalities and, and, you know, it's, and we're here to have fun, you know, and there are some strong opinions and, and that's okay. You know, and, and there can be some opinions that might be emotional too, you know, and how do you help somebody feel heard? be a good listener, you know, and, and understand where they're standing and, you know, what can you do? And, and I it kind of steal like a, a title from, from a, a, 
the title of a book from Charles Bukowski. You know, it, it's it's how well you walk through the fire. And I, you know, I really, I really believe that. I mean, if you can stay, you know, kind of like when you're on the tennis court and there's a, there's, there's a pressure moment, if you can quiet your mind and be a good listener, I think some of the answers will kind of present themselves. And so, you know, that's, that's what Jeff has taught me, you know, and I, I strive to be him and practice that on a daily basis. Well, that segues into the next question. And that is, what qualities do you look for and people that are going to work with you. And in your particular case, because you also help place people throughout the country, what are the qualities that you look for in all those people? Well, I'll probably just name off of all Claudia's, uh, you know, uh, strengths. But, and, but to your point of what else do we look for in the industry, you know, adaptive and passionate people. I mean, you have to have a passion for what you're doing. And again, I, I think at the end of the day, I don't really see this as a job. This is fun, you know, and, and F-U-N and J-O-B, right? I think it's kind of almost the same in this instance here at Bighorn, and that, that's a dream. But you have to have the passion for what you're doing, but you also have to be adaptive. I mean, if you're, if you're going to go run an event and we're in the desert, it's probably going to rain that day. You know, what's your backup plan? You know, Andrew must have broken his shoelace that day or sprained an ankle and he's not going to show up. And that happened 10 minutes before your event. So as a pro, you got to be adaptive and you got to pivot and you have to be thinking a couple chess moves ahead of what if, you know, because we have to think quick on our feet and we have to make certain that we're still providing a great experience and we're not showing that we're stressed. Uh, You know, I think the other thing that I would say is problem solvers versus complainers. You know, I, I've experienced both. I'm lucky to not have that with Claudia at all. She's, she's a problem solver. She's a go-getter. Uh, but I think the industry, you know, it, if people want to succeed in what they do, they need to think through an issue first and come up with some solutions. And maybe it's more about listening, right? And I think a lot of people don't do that enough. Listen to, you know, somebody's perspective because that's, that's the reality that they're living in and, and what can we do to help? Um, Instead of just complaining about a situation, you know, have you thought through it and give it some thought to it, you know, because there could be a great solution there. Solution oriented. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I think kind of, you know, as I, I have had, you know, my career, you just need to be a consummate learner. I'm all about continuing education and giving back to my associations, you know, that have, I mean, this is a sport that has given, has afforded me a lot. You know, my parents sacrificed to put me in. So I want to give back to it. And, you know, and I, again, as I had said earlier, you know, if you're not learning, you're dying. So I, I want to keep improving myself on a daily basis. And what can I do to be a better professional? And, and in return, you know, what does that mean for the membership? What new exciting ideas can we unfold that they can get on board with, which, which would foster more community here? And that's our goal. And I think the last thing that I look for is humor. You know, I think we, we, at the end of the day, we can't take our tel- ourselves too seriously. And, you know, in, in certain situations, sometimes you just have to laugh and, and have a good time. And, and really, that's, that's why we're here. How would you define leadership? You know, I, at least for me, I, I'm more of a democratic and like a, maybe of a hy- hybrid of democratic and persuasive. You know, I want everybody to feel like they have a voice and an opinion and, and everything. But, you know, sometimes, as we all know, when we sit on a board, conversations can be somewhat circular. So I can be persuasive too at the same time. And, 
make a decision, lean on some of my experience and some of the mentors that I've had to make a decision that would be best for the membership. And I might make some mistakes along the way, but you know, you own them and, and you move forward. But you know, I, I think that I think that's super important. And to be decisive, I mean, a, a decision is better than no decision. You can always correct it. Right. Right. And I think the other thing that I like to like to do with staff and again, you know, I'm I'm blessed with Claudia and it's it's super easy is that, you know, I I want to develop, you know, in terms of what we build is just a culture of listening. You know, we're we're here because the membership make it go. And it yes, we're going to be decisive. Uh we're going to make decisions that are best for the membership and and that are going to be fun, but we're here to listen because we're here for you. You've you've touched on most of this, I think, but I'd like to just know, is there an overall management philosophy that you have? Yeah, it's it's more of when I when I've in terms of management, I I want to put people in a, in a position to succeed and for them to have a healthy work life balance. Bighorn affords that for its employees and we're we're no different, you know, in, in rackets. But, you know, it, it's. It's more about, you know, finding what people's strengths are and putting them in that spotlight where they get to succeed. Because it's not about me at the end of the day. And in terms of management philosophy, too, is just my job is to kind of step out of the way and let them be the star. But then also, you know, as we're dealing with an issue or maybe not even an issue, but a challenge, what can I do to help break down that barrier so that way the team can move forward together? And, you know, in our case, it's a small one, it's a fun one, but, you know, we, we have daily conversations on, you know, what, what can we do to make it better? And, and what are your challenges? What can I do to have your back? What, um, with all you've accomplished and you certainly have, um, we talk about, uh, twists and turns starting in Columbus to now you've had a few twists and turns in your in your life but each one um has gotten you to this point in a very successful way what drives you today after all the things that you have accomplished yeah i think at the end of the day for me it's not about putting any more notches on my belt or winning an award of you know pro of the year or, or that it's just again it's just i'm humbled by the sense that you know somebody would want to spend an hour of their day and pay me for that um, you know, where we can go recreate, have fun, banter, you know, whatever, whatever that might be. So again, it's just putting all my energy and passion, enthusiasm into tennis and pickleball and make, making, making a great experience for somebody and trying to be the best part of their day. And, and that being a reason, or at least one of the reasons why they want to continue on here at Bighorn. And the last question for everybody, Andrew, and this is, what advice would you give the 20-year-old Andrew today? Don't chase the dollar and enjoy the journey and the process. Uh, you know, I, in a lot of ways, I was really focused, uber-focused on ascending. And sometimes you would kind of forget where you are and, and you got to take a step back. And, well, I haven't learned that yet. I need to go through that experience so it's just more about, you know, enjoy, enjoy the process. It's the same in tennis. I feel like tennis is a metaphor for life where you got to put in the work. Um, and then the results will take care of themselves later. But don't be focused on the win. Focus on the journey. Andrew, I really appreciate you 
doing this today for us. I think this is really going to get people to know more about you, which was one of the goals of doing this. But also, I think that people will have a greater appreciation for where we're going as a club, especially in the areas of racket sports, because after listening to you, we're definitely ascending and we're definitely in a better place. And that's always been your goal. The other thing I'm so impressed upon is the partnership with you and your wife through this whole time, because I think that that's another thing that's a common thread through these podcasts. And the two of you either sacrificing, accomplishing, whatever, you're definitely a team. And uh, I admire that. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, life is a seesaw, you know, in general, and I'm really lucky to have somebody by my side that supports me. And, you know, I do the same for her. And, and I think, you know, to your point earlier, it's, um, yeah, it's a little bit of a luck, but we created, we created the situation for ourselves and, and, we're super blessed to be here in the desert. Our little child is in, in a school and happy, and we have another one on the way. And this is a great place to be, and this is a great place to raise my family. You know, and I, as I kind of look back to my beginnings in Cleveland, I'm excited for them because, the, you know, they're, they're going to have a lot at their disposal and, you know, hopefully a good life. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Honored to be here. Andrew, thanks for joining us for today's podcast. It's important for us to get to know you in a more personal way and have you share your thoughts and plans for the future of Bighorn. Please take time this new season to get to know Andrew and his head pickleball and tennis pro, Claudia Stepien, and take advantage of their programs and instruction, whether it's to become more proficient or just enjoy the fun and social interaction that Racket Sports provides at Bighorn. And thanks to Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers and Back Nine Greens for their ongoing support of another great season of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. Also, a shout out to Jonathan, the engineer of our podcast, who does such a great job of making the end result so professional. We look forward to a new season at the Bighorn Podcast. There is never a shortage of interesting people and their extraordinary stories in our community.